Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Why are we still uh, fighting against certain uh, veterans groups in court? Uh, Because uh, they are asking for more than we are able to give right now. Um, They are asking for more than we... Well, no. Hang on. You're asking... You're asking for honest answers. There's Mr. Trudeau again. Major Mark Campbell joins me, PPCLI in Afghanistan. He was very, very seriously wounded, lost both of his legs, a member of the Equitas Society lawsuit that Mr. Trudeau was referencing, Major Campbell. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you, as always, for your service to Canada. When you hear those words from the Prime Minister, what's your visceral response? Well, first off, good afternoon, Roy, and then thanks for having me on the show. It's always a pleasure. Um, my my visceral response is 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 shock and disgust, and uh, a sense of a renewed sense, I suppose, of of betrayal uh, at the hands of the the Canadian government. Uh, the, I mean, the Prime Minister himself, the top dog, spoke those words and said that uh, I'm asking. Uh, my my fellow plaintiffs are asking for more than the nation is prepared to give, and uh, I have a real problem with that, considering the nation has plenty to give. It appears elsewhere. Yes, like the self-confessed terrorist Omar Khadr. And then the Prime Minister, Major Campbell, has the audacity to suggest that he's just as upset about that as everybody else. Yeah, well, I mean, crocodile tears from a a part-time drama teacher don't really stir my my emotions. Uh, I don't know about you, Roy, but... uh, you know, um, when the Prime Minister says he's he's disgusted with the payment to Omar Khadr, I, I, I think he speaks with a bit of a forked tongue. Um, I, he had no problem giving Omar Khadr $10.5 million without even taking him to court. No. So why does, he, why does his government insist on continuing a six-year court battle with, uh, with um, Afghanistan veterans? And they wanted to keep it quiet so the rest of us wouldn't know about it. The person who, uh, who, who leaked it to Canadians was going to be in trouble. I wonder if that ever happened. Now we have Seamus O'Regan, the Veterans Affairs Minister, saying that they've significantly improved the reality for Canadian military veterans. They have a campaign going where uh, on one side of a soldier's back is camouflage uniform and a camouflage backpack, and then on the other side of the uh, person's back is a sort of a beige-gray uh, shirt with a beige-gray backpack, which suggests that they're going to take care of the transition from military to civilian. And uh, they've got the whole package, uh, career transition services, education and training benefits. There they write, the education and training benefits provide funding for you, the veteran, to achieve your education and career goals. You may be eligible. Not for me, Roy. I I don't qualify for that education. Well, talk talk to us about that. 27 years in, in, in the PPCLI and the regular Army. Uh, I don't qualify because I've been declared uh, what's known as diminished earnings capacity. Uh, effectively, they've they've determined that due to my injuries, uh, my, I would guess primarily my psychological injuries, I'm uh, I'm basically uh, untrainable. Um, I can I, 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 they don't expect me to be able to find gainful civilian employment given the extent and scope of my 
my injuries. So I've basically been written off for any sort of job training or uh, education benefit. I'm still trying at this point to find out if I'm even going to qualify for the quote-unquote personal interest training, um, which is supposed to assist me um, with my transition by helping me find new hobbies or, 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 or things of interest. So we'll see if I even qualify for that. But the $80,000 and four years of university is, 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 not, uh, is not in the cards for, for me and people like me. And there are quite a few. Uh, yeah, there are a good number of, of disabled veterans. I mean, uh, 2,000 injuries uh, arising from uh, Afghanistan alone, that's wounds. So those are attributable to uh, enemy action. Um, so 2,000 there and, you know, IEDs and whatnot. So you can imagine with 2,000 wounded, not all of them as seriously as I was, but a, a goodly number, um, yeah, they don't qualify for that education benefit either. If they've been declared diminished earnings capacity in order to receive other benefits like income replacement, well, then you're not going to qualify for an education benefit. Major Campbell. You can't have, you can't have it all. You get, you get a little bits and pieces here and there, but, uh, yeah, the yeah. Egg, it, there is no golden egg. For, for veterans and and you know for 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 the minister to go around in his town halls and 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 tweeting that you know all is well in 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 the kingdom of veterans affairs i mean that's just a that's a farce I, that is so disingenuous i don't even know where to begin do you talk about the backlog of of applications do you do you talk about the pension for life that that isn't a pension for life for 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 84% or 88% of disabled veterans. I mean, where do you even start? Well, Mr. Trudeau, in his speech in uh, Halifax yesterday, uh, took a run at Stephen Harper for not being properly uh, cognizant and caring about uh, about veterans. And certainly there's a lot Mr. Harper could have done that he didn't do. But this is 2018. Well, uh, precisely. You know, this blame game has to stop. The politicking on the backs of disabled veterans has to stop. We're not an election ploy. Um, you know, we're not something that you can trot out to point and say, oh, look, look what the other guy didn't do, when you yourself aren't doing anything better. That's, that's, that's problem number one. Problem number two is, if you, you know, if you identify a problem arising from someone else's inaction, then it's incumbent upon you to take the necessary action to correct the fault. That is yet to be done. So for Mr. Trudeau to disparage Mr. Harper's record when it comes to veterans, again, I think it's quite disingenuous when his own government does not have its Veterans Affairs House anywhere near in order. I was thinking about when you were in Afghanistan and you would get up every morning and as would your fellow um, members of Canada's military family, you'd get up and you'd get ready to do the job. And you were yep. doing it wearing a Canadian uniform with a Canadian flag on your shoulder. You were doing it openly and clearly and patriotically. I was then thinking about Mr. Trudeau when he was in India, and he got up and he put on his uniforms, whatever they were. <laughs> Costumes. Costumes. Yeah. And, uh, and really, it's disgraceful the manner in which this government insists on treating veterans, and for him to have the audacity to say in a town hall that you're asking for too much is another reason why he should never be returned as Prime Minister of Canada. Major Campbell, I thank you very much for joining us. As always, we're going to have you back, and thanks for making time for us. Hey, Roy, you're, you're always welcome. It's, it's a genuine pleasure to talk to you because you get it. And, and I know other Canadians get it because of 
your plane speak on the issues, and and that's why I'm always willing and, and able to, to well, thank you. you because uh, you you speak the truth, and not everybody does. Well, so thank you. Thank you for that. Well, we care. Thank you. You're listening to the Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from two to five on 900 CHML. I ask anyone out there if your son, daughter, loved one ever had an addiction, would you want them to go in a little area and and do more drugs? I am dead against that. There is so much talk about uh, drugs, legal and illegal, that you kind of lose focus after a bit unless you had a serious focus going in. And you know, on this program, our focus has been on chronic pain patients, chronic agony patients, who are being increasingly denied the drugs they require, the opioid medications they require to live reasonably and not be considering suicide. So we don't have to be talking on this program to the wife and daughter of a man who, at 52 years of age, shot himself in the head and killed himself because he was being denied even access to fundamental medication that he required, that he'd been prescribed for years. You've heard that many times on this program where um, pain patients have talked about suddenly after 10 or 15 or even 20 years of working very well and living very very well on uh, opioids. They were never out of pain completely. But uh, then suddenly, because of this opioid crisis that's ongoing, the patients are denied their medication, while on the other side of the ledger, there are going to be opportunities for individuals who declare themselves to be addicted to opioids to go into these clinics that they'll open and receive their opioids. And the cynic in me says that one of the reasons they're going to do this is so that they can point the finger of addict at the pain patient. Well, the pain patient came in here and then admitted that he or she was addicted to opioids, so so we gave them the opioids, but now we know they're addicts. There's so much debate about drugs, legal, illegal, marijuana is going to be legal shortly, 12-year-olds will have the right to have a very limited amount of marijuana. Ralph Goodale, the public security safety minister, says that's because they don't want children to be carrying a criminal record around with them for life. Well, how about just not carrying dope around when you're 12? It's the same fallacious thinking that allows a 12-year-old to have an abortion without parents even knowing. I know I'm telling you, sometimes I tell you these things and a lot of people are not aware. 12-year-old can have an abortion without parents having the right to know. Certainly that's the case in the province of Ontario and some other provinces as well. And then, most recently, liberal backbenchers as a group decided to call for the decriminalization of illicit drugs. And I'll just read a few lines from the Global News story. The Trudeau government is rejecting a call from its own backbenchers to decriminalize all illicit drug use in Canada just days before the Liberals are set to debate the idea. At a national convention in Halifax, a so-called priority resolution put forward by the National Liberal Caucus for debate at the convention calls on the government to treat illegal drug use as a public health issue, not as a criminal issue. There's some merit to that treating it as a public health issue, 
But the whole idea of decriminalizing drugs is bonkers. And I said that to Paul Martin when he was in the studio. And he was putting the idea forward. I said to him, Prime Minister, you realize that you're forcing people, if you decriminalize illicit drugs, you're still requiring people to buy their drugs from a very criminalized drug dealer. And Paul Martin got one of those deer-in-the-headlights looks because he wasn't ready for the question. I suspect Bill Bogart is ready for that question. He's an international expert on reducing the harm of risky behavior, and uh, he's published and edited eight books, including Permit But Discourage and Off the Street Legalizing Drugs. He's a contributor to Huffington Post. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Bill, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me on, Roy. What's the argument in favor of decriminalizing all illicit drugs? Uh, And if I can uh, just uh, bring everyone up to speed, Roy, that resolution uh, actually was voted on at the Liberal Party convention and ended up in the top three. Uh, so the party faithful are are behind this resolution uh, for better for ill. Uh, the the argument basically is that um, if you decriminalize drugs, you're going to remove the stigma, you're going to remove the fear of criminal prosecution, and you're therefore going to encourage people to come forward, get help, get stabilized, and you know if possible, get off the drug altogether. Really, or will you just be creating more opportunity to become an addict? Well, you, you know, Roy, I mean, logically, uh, that might possibly follow. But I think if you look at the evidence, and we do have evidence available, that isn't what occurs. Uh, and what I'm talking about here particularly is the um, in- initiative in Portugal that took place about 15 years ago, Portugal was in the midst of a a drug crisis, and uh, the government responded by decriminalizing uh, pretty well all drugs and also putting uh, social and health service, more social and health services in place. And uh, what happened was uh, deaths from overdoses went down. There was not a a spike in drug usage. Kids were adequately protected from drug use. Uh, Portugal was not turned into uh, a haven of drug tourism, in other words, people going there to just to take drugs. And, uh, of course, the resources that would have gone into apprehending and pr- uh, prosecuting individuals could be deployed for other purposes. So, uh, but Bill, how do the drugs come into the country, and who sells them, the decriminalized drugs, to the average citizen because it didn't stop the sale of previously illicit drugs in Portugal. Who does the selling? You're you're pointing to... uh, I'm asking a a question. Yeah, no, but you're you're pointing to a real issue about the limits of decriminalization. Because I'm I'm always going to tell you, either legalize whatever you're doing or don't. Don't go for the middle. Well, then, then Roy, um, I'd be happy to see you advocating that, because ultimately that would be my position. It's difficult and... And yeah, but I don't believe that. I don't believe that. So I would go with illegal simply because I've seen the damage that it can do. 
drugs can do an enormous amount of... So does alcohol, which they don't do anything about. Yeah. I'm not here to tell you and your listeners... No, no, I know that, that Bill. I, I know. I know. This should happen because I think that drugs are harmless. No, no, I know. Yeah. My, my position is drugs can cause a great deal of harm. I just don't think... We should try to solve those problems through the criminal justice. Okay, so but they tried it. Uh, Chrétien tried it. Martin was going to try it. And then they fumbled and stumbled and didn't do anything. Um, so, again, I, who sells the drugs? Is it still the criminalized drug dealer? So a person has to do business with a criminal and uh, who could be yanked off the street at the time the person's buying their drugs. I mean, the scenarios are many. There's also the one where you point out that maybe people get off the stuff. I... Well, and that's certainly the goal, right? Yeah, well, yeah, we want, we want weird people, way to weird way to achieve it. People who are are dependent on these drugs to 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 get off them. But uh, you're, you're right. I mean, there's limitations about decriminalization, and that's re- those limitations really persuaded um, Prime Minister Trudeau, rightly or wrongly, to go whole hog with cannabis, and that's why. We're going to legalize and regulate it because uh, we want to speak also to the supply side. We don't want the criminal elements selling the drug. We want to tax that billion-dollar industry. We want to have quality assurance, et cetera, et cetera. But the billion-dollar industry is not going to go away because they'll just make the product more powerful and they'll compete with price, uh, the, the, with the government prices, and you know what happened when government tried to raise taxes on uh, on tobacco, there was a gun battle in uh, in uh, in uh, on, on the Ontario Quebec border, and uh, that was the end of that. But I'm not well, suggesting that's going to happen here. But the, the the billion dollar industry is not going to go away and just give up. No, no, but but let's talk about tobacco for a moment. Roy. Okay, hold on, I'll come back to you. Okay, let me take a break. All right, we're talking to Bill Bogart. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Uh, Again, reading from the Global News story, anyone found in possession of an illegal drug in Portugal is ordered to appear before something called a dissuasion commission, which can refer the person for treatment or impose administrative sanctions, such as fines. So how would it work then? And what, what, what formula do you see? Bill Bogart is with us. He uh, writes on issues such as this, public health issues. His books include Permit But Discourage and Off the Street, Legalizing Drugs. Also writes for the Huffington Post. Uh, Bill, how would the form, format work? What would the law look like if it, were, if it were done optimally from your perspective? Well, you know, I think the, 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 the main element would be the removal of criminal sanctions. Uh, an individual using these drugs would not be charged criminally. They would not face uh, incarceration. They would not have a criminal record. Now, if uh, the folks that looked at this said, you know what, an administrative penalty, some kind of sanction should still be in place, and incidentally that the Liberal Party resolution contemplates that, then that, uh, you know, could be could be done in Portugal. I think they keep the, the 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 penalty in place, basically, so that a person apprehended with drugs can can be asked some questions about. Look, are you using this recreationally? And they, do you understand the dangers of even recreational use? Or, like, are, are you dependent on this? Can you not get along without it? Because if you can't get along without it, 
you're in the area of problematic use, and you need to get some help because things are only going to get worse. From oh, with, you know, with due respect for all of that, isn't that basically worthless? Don't people know that going in? Aren't people aware of that they're in trouble if they're using drugs and the drugs have taken over their lives? Well, Roy, but, uh, but let's look at, at the studies of what occurred in Portugal. When they put this in place, deaths from drug overdose went down, HIV rates of infection went down. Uh, there wasn't a drug spike in. It wasn't a spike in drug usage. Uh, there, there wasn't a problem with drug tourism. In other words, apparently, it did have a very beneficial effect. How about? Are there any numbers or any statistics on the um, criminal acts that were that that took place after this legislation went went into force? In other words. Did uh, people who were taking drugs mm-hmm. feel comfortable with the with the way things were, and so they took the drugs? And you know that taking drugs, and if, particularly if you can't afford it, is going to cause people to commit criminal acts in order to get the money to buy the drugs. Yeah, no, no, and I, and I, I I can't give you any information on that, and I I agree with you. That can be uh, a problem, and uh, you know uh, is one of the. Uh, consequences of just stopping at at decriminalization and not going all the way to legalization and regulation. Because the war on drugs has been lost, hasn't it? Well, I know, but that's a is that a point for you or is that a point for me? It's not a point for anybody. It's just well, a fact. I, except, I think I think what it it the conclusion it takes a new it's going to take a new approach. Is the, this isn't a new approach. This is just a sort of a putting your toe in the water to see how hot it is. No, no, but but the fundamental premise of the dr- war on drugs was criminalization of drugs, right? We're going to solve this by threatening and actually locking people up, and then people will stop using drugs. And that is not a curve, Roy. No, I know, because the drugs make their way into jail. Exactly, exactly. So let's stop thinking about all of this as a criminal law issue, and let's start thinking of yeah, it but as it's, a public but, health but issue. I get it, Bill. I understand. I, I agree with you that it's a public health issue, but at the same time, to take people before a commission and say to them, do you not recognize the fact that this is bad behavior or that it's injurious to you, that's dopey because people know that. All it does is create a, a, a layer of bureaucracy. Well, except that whatever it creates, we, the statistics seem to suggest that it has. Yeah, but statistics can all be manipulated. Uh, look, right. There's no. I align myself with the Economist. The Economist says in advocating for not turning to criminal law in, on this issue, it, it, legalization and regulation, or even decriminalization, is the least harmful way. There's no good way to deal with this. There's no good way. Do we know what percentage of the population actually does drugs? Pardon me. Do we know what population of the what percentage of the population does drugs? Well, it varies. It, it varies for the drugs. It varies. You know, alcohol. Yeah. It's very. It's very high. And, yeah. and yeah, it's you, interesting you say that because most people wouldn't think of alcohol as a drug because it's been okay for so long. I know, but Roy, you and I know the kinds of harms. That, I, absolutely. That and look, tobacco. Uh, 40,000 people a year die of tobacco-related illnesses in this country. Yeah, I know, but, you know, tobacco, and you talked about tobacco earlier, tobacco is a public health success story. We've gotten the rates of consumption of tobacco down from about 50% down to about 17%, and they're falling. And with kids, they're down to single digits. so are the smokers. Pardon me? I say so are the smokers. They're falling, too. There's still a huge number 
of people who smoke, and it's just been it's been accepted. Bill, are, do you believe, based on 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 the studies and and based on your knowledge and your research, do you believe that they're going to get to a point in this country where um, illicit now illicit drugs will become legal, and it's not dependent on the Liberal Party or the New Democrats or the Conservatives? Do you believe there's going to be the kind of public view? and public attitude which will force politicians and governments to follow the public will. And and legalize and regulate drugs? Yeah, yeah. Do you think that's going to happen? I think it will happen, Roy. It's not going to happen tomorrow, that's for sure. And it, it needs a lot of debate and discussion like the way we're having right now. Um, and folks like me who advocate for this uh, bear the onus of showing that as the economist say, says, this is the least harmful way to, to go about this. But yeah, I think we'll get there. Okay. Thank you for the time. I appreciate it. Thanks very much for the opportunity. All the best. Right. Same to you. Thank you. Bill Bogart, who is the author of Off the Street, um, Legalizing Drugs and Permit But Discourage, eight books on this issue. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Trans Mountain Pipeline, as you know, continues to be a, a major concern, a major issue. And uh, the question now is apparently going to sound like how much will Canadian taxpayers be picking up as far as the eventual total bill for the pipeline extension is going to be, some $7.4 billion. How much of it will we end up picking up in an agreement with Kinder Morgan? If that's the way it's going to turn out. We're going to be speaking with the mayor of Fort Nelson, British Columbia, in just a minute. And we'll be joined by Vivian Krauss as well. And we'll talk about what's happening in that part of British Columbia, where they've been hit very hard with the non-building um, of, a, of a gas pipeline. And that was decided by a B.C. Supreme Court justice. There's so many issues, so many uh, aspects of this that are intertwined. So before we do any of that, let me just uh, take you back to last weekend when we spoke with the Premier of Saskatchewan, Scott Moe. And uh, I asked the Premier about the situation with the pipeline itself, why it was important, because Saskatchewan got into the uh, argument between British Columbia and Alberta, and Saskatchewan had said that they would pass legislation, if Alberta did, to, in fact, make it impossible for Saskatchewan energy to be moved to uh, British Columbia. So here's uh, what Scott Moe said. The Premier of British Columbia has, has no grounds to be making comments uh, on, this, on, the, on, this, uh, on the approval of this project. It's been approved and, they, and it should be built. If the situation continues as is, would you consider actually turning off the spigot for oil from Saskatchewan making its way to British Columbia? Well, Saskatchewan does send some energy products uh, that are utilized in British Columbia, and uh, Alberta would, would send a fair amount more. And I would say this, if, if Alberta is going to pass their legislation to turn the taps off, if you will, to British Columbia, um, the next logical place for British Columbia to come for that product is Saskatchewan, and, and we would pass legislation so that it wouldn't be accessible. Uh, this, this pipeline uh, should be built. It's unfortunate that it comes to a conversation such as this. Um, but, you know, at the crux of the matter is this is a national, this is a federal government decision and and they should they should move on this pipeline with whatever tools they have 
and I, you know, we'll talk about some of the tools that they're using in other areas where they actually don't have jurisdiction, like such as carbon tax. Mm-hmm. But he, but here, this begs the question: Our ports, our rail lines, our pipelines are are under the national purview for a reason. Our nation was built on the construction of some of these projects. And they've been very unifying projects for the nation of Canada. If a province such as British Columbia is able to stop one of these projects, it begs the question is, do we, do we still have a nation? And when a premier of Canada asks that question, it's not a question you ignore. And we didn't. And we can't. And yet the pipeline still remains, the Trans Mountain Pipeline still remains, a great issue of contention. Now, the Americans are still pouring money into Canada. Vivian Krauss has told us that at uh, Fair Questions on Twitter to stop the whole, uh, uh, the pipeline building in this country because the Americans like to be able to get our fuel, our, our energy, our oil at a discounted price. Let me say hello to Vivian Krauss uh, at Fair Questions on uh, Twitter. Hi, Vivian. Hi, Roy. Hello from Fort Nelson. Great to have you with us again. And uh, with us as well from Fort Nelson is the mayor, Mayor Bill Streeper. How are you, Mr. Mayor? Hello there. Not too bad. Mayor Streeper, when you hear uh, the Premier of Saskatchewan talking about the the issues and the and the challenges that are being dealt with by provinces, or the the challenges that are causing provinces to be pit against one another, how familiar does that sound to you in Fort Nelson? Oh, that sounds quite familiar. We've gone around and around and around and that and death. I mean, I don't want to see things interrupted, but something's got to be done especially at British Columbia, to wake people up to a real world that's here. And they got to realize that uh, what they're saying and what they're doing is unrealistic. You know, and I can uh, cite examples. When Shell pulled into Broad Inlet with that drilling rig here to have some repairs done, oh, I don't know, four years ago, five years ago, and the environmentalists, went out there and surrounded the whole drilling rig and wanted them out of there. Every one of them was in a plastic canoe. Now, a plastic canoe, we know, comes from the petrochemical industry. Yeah. So, I mean, realistically, you're out there boycotting against somebody in the oil industry, and you're in a plastic canoe. That's where it comes from. What has all this done to your community? It's just about wrecked our community. Um, we were a very vibrant... Uh, I was in the oil field transportation for 40-some years. And uh, right now, there's not a rig moving. There's not a rig drilling. Our production from here, the uh, Enbridge plant, is down to just a bare minimum. Uh, Very little gas is going out of here. Um, We've got uh, quite a few houses owned by the bank. Unemployment is as high as it can ever be. There's just no money here. People can't even pay stall rents for, for modular homes. Their wives are uh, living in town with their kids trying to raise a family, and the husbands are scattered all over Canada wherever they can find a job. And, I mean, what kind of lifestyle is that? It isn't. You know, absolutely and All because of a stop in the oil and gas and also here in the logging industries. We have absolutely no industry here. Uh, being on council... We've gone two years now with reducing our budgets. We, we just couldn't exist. The people couldn't afford to pay the taxes. And we're down to the point, if we've got to re- reduce our budget anymore, we've got to reduce services. And i uh, give you an example. Rec center open maybe only six days a week. Uh, if that's the case, 
what we got to do, but uh, there, there's no money. Point blank, there's there's no jobs. <clears throat> Uh, right now, Fort Nelson is pretty well about as worse as I've ever seen in the community. What would you want to say to Premier Horgan and to Mr. Andrew Weaver? Well, first of all, I'd like to say both of you try to go one day without using any petroleum products, which is literally impossible because they're both dressed in them. Um, one thing I'd like to just jump off the subject a little bit, but it's to do with this subject. They're sitting there and they're coming down on Kinder Morgan and uh, they don't want the pipeline, and they don't want the crude shipping. Yet, eight miles south of the B.C. American border, there's a place called Cherry Point, Washington. Have you ever heard of it? I have, yes. The big BP refinery. That refinery processes 235,000 barrels a day. The majority of the crude for that refinery comes from Valdez, Alaska, down the B.C. coast, around the tip of Vancouver Island, in American waters, and is actually located farther north than Victoria. And yet, there is not one tourist, one fisherman, one politician in Victoria, and anybody living on Vancouver Island have ever seen a drop of crude on B.C. shore. And that's been going on since 1971. And we know now, uh, Vivian, we know now that the, the price of oil on the world market is going up. They're talking about the $70 barrel, the $80 barrel, and some people are speculating perhaps even the $100 barrel will return. So there's, there's, no, uh, there's no lack of, uh, of interest in, in, in buying oil from developing countries and countries like China, which just finalized a, a, a huge deal with Brazil. Yeah. You know, Roy, there's there's an elephant in the room here. There's this topic that's been taboo that nobody's want to talk about for years now. And we need to talk about it. You know, it's the it's the M word, the monopoly. We need to talk about the fact that the US has a monopoly on oil from Western Canada. And building these pipelines is not just a construction project. It's it's re-jigging the trade relationship, one of the most valuable trade relationships in the world, which is the trade of oil between the U.S. and Canada. And we need our politicians, starting with our prime minister and our premiers, to talk about this and to talk about how the fact that our neighbor has our country over a barrel. And people need to understand that what is happening is that these uh, U.S.-funded activists are creating regulations, protests, and campaigning as part of a campaign that is explicitly to keep Canadian oil out of overseas markets where it can fetch a higher price per barrel. Their activism is costing us $40 million a day, and we need our politicians finally to talk about this. And what are the chances of that? Because as, as I was saying last weekend with uh, Premier Horgan and Premier Notley and Prime Minister Trudeau all talking about the extension of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, there you have three Canadian politicians who don't believe in pipelines to begin with. So what's, how, much, how much real interest do they have? I mean, Premier Horgan has an interest in, in delaying the thing as long as possible, but how much interest does Premier Notley or Prime Minister Trudeau really have in in building it. I mean, I'm not being a cynic when I ask well, that question. If 
I think, you know, if, if uh, people in government won't raise the issue of the U.S. monopoly, then it falls to the, the, the opposition parties, yes, both federally and mm-hmm. at the provincial level. Somebody needs to have the courage to bring up this topic. And if they won't, then it's going to fall to people at the municipal level, like our mayor here in, in Fort Nelson, where we are today. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Back to Mayor Bill Streeper of Fort Nelson, British Columbia, and Vivian Krause at Fair Questions on Twitter. And uh, Vivian, of course, also writes for the Financial Post. And Vivian's the person who discovered the amounts, the huge amounts of money that are flowing from the United States into Canada. And the money is being funneled toward individuals and groups who are opposing the building of the pipelines. And there's little being said, actually nothing being said by our prime minister and our federal government about this. And we have provinces at each other's throats and there's economic repercussions that are going to affect us all. And at some point, Quebec will get into this because they are importing oil from the Middle East and they're doing it by tanker. Um, Mayor Streeper, remind us again, please, of what is going on. How has this entire mess affected your community of 4,500? And then I ask you this as well. Other communities which are reasonably close to you, how are they being affected? What's the overall effect on the area of British Columbia you call home? Because wasn't the province or wasn't the federal government going to make up for the the uh, the, uh, the challenges that you were going to be facing because of the pipelines and about oil and gas with the uh, resurgence of the, uh, of the forestry industry? Um, they, they were. That is slowly happening. Uh, is there any trees being cut down? No, there isn't right now. Um, there's been a lot of talk, and they were looking at that, but uh, we haven't seen one job created as of yet. But if anybody's ever seen a devastated town in North America, it's right here. Like you're literally businesses that the the small what we call the mom and pa operation. You know the corner stores, stuff like that. They're gone. Uh, beauty salons, they're gone. You know this kind of stuff. There's just not the work here uh, for them people to stay in existence uh, right now. Industrial real estate in uh, Fort Nelson is a little better than 60 to 62 percent vacant right now. Wow. And I'm talking uh, buildings that were, you know, multi-million dollars to build. There's uh, just no need for them. There's no need for the tenants. What are they All selling the, for? What What's the real estate selling for? What's the re- uh, real estate selling for? Yeah. Some of it's selling less than the price of the property right now. Uh, you can get into a a, a very nice uh, three bedroom for under a hundred thousand. Wow. And, uh, you know, again, like I was saying earlier, it's the lifestyle too that's, uh, you know, broken up. And mm-hmm. we used to be a community of 6,800 people. We have sitting on the shelf at the municipal office the plans to take us to 10,000 and the plans to take us to 15,000 because the way it was happening back here in the 80s, that's where we were going to be. And uh, you virtually couldn't get a house. You couldn't buy property. Things were just so busy and going around here. And when the oil patch was hopping and the lumber industry was going, I mean, we were a busy place. And uh, right now it's, it's, it's devastation. Do you see, do you foresee larger communities um, in British Columbia, in Alberta, in Saskatchewan, and really um, 
probably all of Canada because the oil issue and the oil sands issue affects everybody. Do you see other communities that consider themselves to perhaps be immune from what you're experiencing to actually be on the list to have not getting uh, quite as um, dramatic a change in their lives as you have, but nevertheless, better get ready for, for some significant changes. Um, there is other communities, um, some community like we are a gas community when you talk about oil. I mean, mm-hmm. we are dry gas. We have no condensate, which is a very light form of crude. Uh, communities to the south of us are better off because they do have gas with condensate, but they're still not back to where they were, let's say, in 2006, 2005. They're, they're not to that level yet, but they're in better shape than we are. And the only reason this has happened to you is because, finish that sentence for me, please. Because we have dry gas. And the politicians haven't done their job, the governments haven't done their jobs, and you've been left We hanging. were the communities that was supplying the natural gas for the LNG. Our gas that we have here is in very high volumes, uh, very, um, uh, the formations here are probably some of the best natural gas formations in the world. And when you hook onto them, they, they just run for years. And we just have so much gas here that uh, LNG is the only area for us to go. And we were building for the LNG when they announced that they were <clears throat> going to go ahead with these and look at it. And that's what everybody here was hoping to cash in on as being the producing area, which we will be if LNG ever gets going. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Ask yourself if anybody's really in charge, if anybody's really driving, or if it's just special interests that are dictating what's going to happen in this country, what's going to happen to the economics of uh, gas and oil, with which we're blessed, with which Canada is blessed, We have huge amounts of gas and oil, but we're not taking advantage of the opportunities that we have. And I hear a lot about concerns about the environment and about oil spills and about issues that deserve to be discussed and debated. But I don't understand, and it's just me, I don't understand how tankers are so much worse than rail cars. I don't get it. I know you're going to tell me that rail cars, if one of them is small, much smaller than a tanker, but I lived close to Lake Lake Megantic in Quebec and I saw what happened there. This is an issue that has to be resolved. I don't hear about tankers leaking into the St. Lawrence River. I hear about a lot of fecal matter being deposited into the St. Lawrence by the city of Montreal. I've also heard about a lot of fecal matter being deposited into the ocean in British Columbia. But the longer there's an absence of leadership, real leadership, and it has to come because it's a federal issue, it has to come from the prime minister, and it has to come from the PMO, it has to come from the federal government, as long as there is an absence or an increasing absence of leadership, the issue is only going to become more challenging, more disturbing, more polarizing, and less productive. Vivian Krauss, at Fair Questions on Twitter. And Mayor Bill Streeper from Fort Nelson, British Columbia, are with me. We're talking about the uh, 
the fallout on one community of what's been going on and what is going on currently. Vivian, would you add your thoughts to this, please? Sure, I'd, I'd love to. I think we, we need two things. We need leadership. We need our politicians to talk about the issues. And we need Canadians to have a common understanding of what is actually going on. People need to realize this is not just about the environment. It is about the U.S. monopoly on our own. It is about how the U.S. has Canada over a barrel and how we need to break that U.S. monopoly. We also need to look at how the politicians that we currently have in power got elected in the first place, most federally, provincially, and also in British Columbia at at the municipal levels in some of the key ridings. You know, um, Roy, you know, over the last eight years, I've been following the money that's gone into this uh, campaign that they call the Tar Sands campaign. And what I notice is that after about 2012, the top funded groups are the ones who were involved in get the vote out activism, in elections activism, in especially an organization called the Sisu Institute, which funds Lead Now, and secondly, the Dogwood Initiative. And, you know, the, the Sisu Institute they claim to have helped defeated 26 conservative incumbents. Of course, they didn't do that. You know, they, they were certainly not the only factor in, in, that contributed to the results of the 2015 federal election. But in some ridings, they had full-time staff where the riding was lost, for example, in Winnipeg by some 60 votes. So we need to look. We need to understand the reason that our... I'm not saying I, I'm excusing this, but we need to understand that the reason that our politicians are so sensitive to these anti-pipeline activists is because they help them get elected. Now look at Premier Horgan, for example, the individual who is in charge of the digital communications for the entire government of British Columbia is from the Dogwood Initiative. So you now have the guy controlling digital communications for the entire BC government who is from the team that is running this anti-pipeline campaign. The Premier hired him, chose him out of everybody that he could have chosen put someone from the anti-pipeline campaign in charge of the government's communication. You know, that's, and so what, you're, what, you, what you have is an individual who has been at the heart of a campaign that is costing Canada $40 million a day. That individual is now running communications for the B.C. government, and we wonder why the Premier is on side with the anti-pipeline campaign. I think that begins to explain it. We also have Gerald Butts, who's the former head of the World Wildlife Federation, as the primary advisor to Prime Minister Trudeau, and Mr. Butts is no, uh, no champion of, uh, of, of pipelines or of the oil sands, and we know that Justin Trudeau isn't. So yeah. you're, you're, you're the only person, literally, you're, you're a, a one-person army who's informing uh, Canada. You really are. Well, well, Roy, here's the thing. So at my blog, I just put up a post a couple of days ago. I haven't even tweeted it yet. But it, it, what it calls for is a reconsideration of how the Canada Revenue Agency, how the CRA handled yeah, the, the audits of the political activity of charities. Okay? The CRA reported at the end of 2016 that they had audited 42 charities and 41 out of 42 were somehow in the wrong. The federal government then asked the CRA to discontinue all the follow-up with regards to these audits. One of the things that the CRA had reported before um, the, the change of government was that they had found undue benefits. That means someone who was involved with, in the director of one of these charities got money that that individual shouldn't have had. And we need to ask, who was that individual? Is it, in fact, someone who was in the PMO? Gerald Butts, for example, got $400,000 as what he calls severance 
okay? Imagine if the president of the Fraser Institute had resigned to run the campaign, uh, the leadership and then the election campaigns for Andrew Scheer. And the Fraser Institute paid that individual a $400,000, you know, severance, which is tantamount, really, to a sabbatical. Imagine the scandal there would be. Mm-hmm. Well, we have almost the exact same situation having occurred with Gerald Butts. So we need to, we need to know. Why were those audits basically swept under the carpet? And who, who are the individuals who got these undue benefits? If, it, if one of those individuals isn't the principal secretary to the prime minister of our country, well, then let's, let's, let's hear it. The CRA needs to explain this to Canadians. What happened to those, what happened to those audits? They also found um, serious noncompliance, you know. And imagine, okay, there's a charity, a registered charity that did absolutely nothing except transfer money from Tides Canada to another foundation called the Salal Foundation, which then funds the Dogwood Initiative, the engine of anti-pipeline activism. How is it that a registered charity can be involved in that sort of a, you know, a, a chain of flowing money? And, and can be considered charitable. That's the DI Foundation. I've raised this before. It needs to be shut down, and every other shell charity like it needs to be shut down. We need to have charities doing charity, not politics in the interests of another country. And it's not as though you've been putting together this information and keeping it to yourself. You've shared this in the pages of the Financial Post. You've shared it on uh, Fair Questions on Twitter. You've shared it with uh, with, with, with with broadcasters. Uh, like me, you've been very open with the information. There's no reason to suspect that in the PMO or in the uh, in, in the office of uh, various premiers and in the offices of the CRA, they're not just they're not fully aware. We know they're fully aware of what you just yes. talked about. So they're quite happy to just leave things the way they are. Well, where, whereas we're <laughs> saying you're saying follow the money. Yeah, but you know, Roy, as you know, right. The day this gets mentioned on the floor of the House of Commons, mark my words, it will lead the evening news. We need Her Majesty's loyal opposition, whichever party that is. Of course, we know at the moment it's the Conservative Party of Canada. That party needs to raise this issue on the floor of the House of Commons. The day that happens, it'll be on CBC, it'll be in the Globe and Mail, all those media outlets that haven't want to talk about it. When the leader of the opposition raises the issue, it will be discussed. Interesting you should bring up the leader of the opposition because that's how we started the program today, talking about the public absence of Andrew Scheer. And Mr. Scheer should take this particular cause and case, uh, take the bit between his teeth and run with it because it's for the benefit of the country. And I think he might be surprised at how many Canadians across Canada would thank him for doing that and it might really support him quite, quite well come next October. Yeah. 2019. We've been waltzed, Roy. You know, we've been waltzed is what's happened, this great green waltz. We've been told that yeah. this, all this anti-pipeline activism was about protecting the environment. No, it's not. It's about protecting the U.S. monopoly on our oil. I have about two minutes uh, before we have to thank you both for joining us. Uh, Mr. Mayor, what is your, what is your, um, what's your prognostication for your community if things don't change? If things don't improve, what happens to Fort Nelson? Oh, well, basically, it'll be one person here selling fuel to a tourist that wants to go to Alaska, and that's it. Uh, our industrial base will be completely wiped right out. Uh, there will be people that uh, will have lost millions of dollars in uh, infrastructure that was put in here, real estate that was put in here, and stuff like this. And 
we we just can't take no more. But I'd like to add one thing here before uh, we leave here. Sure. Of how many people in the East know about the provincial equalization payments? Most of us. You know, where you take all the money from B.C., well, surplus money from B.C., Alberta, Saskatchewan, yeah. and you ship it to Newfoundland and Nova Scotia. Or Quebec. Or Ontario. We don't any money to send anymore. It's also Ontario and Quebec. Well, Quebec's always gotten billions, but Ontario's a right. have-not province get now. It get it from you. Yeah, well, me don't have it anymore. My wallet's empty. It really is. It really is. It, it begs the question: Is anybody awake, or what's the real agenda that they have? What to, to drive us back to the time in our history when we were drawing pictures on cave walls with charcoal? Well, I'm being a little cynical, but well, you don't have to be because everything else you're going to use to write with is going to be gone because it's all made out of petroleum products. The plastic that holds your pen together. Mm-hmm. Where do you think that comes from? I'm on your side, Mr. Mayor. You know, this is what people got to realize. This industry, we cannot live without. You won't even go to a hospital and get an MRI because that's solid plastic. Can you imagine what people would do without their smartphone? Yeah. Yeah. And Um, and, uh, when you're talking about solar panels, they're all made out of petroleum products. Yeah. Vivian, what's your sense of action actually being taken? What's, What's your feeling? I mean, we can push this... As hard as we can, and media needs to push hard and get the and get the conservatives, the opposition, uh, to do as, exactly what you said. But what? How much? And I have sixty seconds. What's your sense that things will actually take place? We can do this, Roy. Come on, we're Canadians. Up up here around Fort Nelson, they used to walk hundreds of kilometers from over the Edmonton area all the way over the Rockies. The people that have come before us have faced way greater challenges than Facebook and Twitter. Well all we have to do is get our politicians to talk about this on the floor of the House of Commons, and it will start to spread, and people will start to understand what's really going on. And once Canadians wake up and realize they start to smell the competition that we have, we, things will start to change. I'm confident. Right. We just, it's hard work. We just need to get down to it and get it done. I just have this feeling, this little thought in my brain, uh, Prime Minister Krause. Just I don't know who you're talking about. You. But my uncle Bob, my <laughs> uncle Bob used to work up here in Fort Nelson. Let me tell you, we got to finish this on a positive note. It is gorgeous up here. Yeah. You should see it. There's still snow around. Huge, big, big blue skies. People are super friendly. It's, it, you know, it, it breaks my heart to hear the mayor talk about the difficulty, even the divorces, even the even the social things right. that we aren't mentioning, right? But you know, we just we drove through Prophet River on the way up here. They have a gorgeous community center, high school. It's a beautiful place, you know. And that we have because of the prosperity of our country. We need to that we need to maintain that prosperity because that's what pays for the kind of centers that are getting built on in First Nations communities and you know the the more remote communities where people don't have some of the luxuries that we have in cities like Vancouver and Toronto. You yeah. know, we got to fight for everybody here. We need a country that's fair for all. My dear, I'm glad we a lot of hard work. I'm glad we have you. We'll keep pushing from this end. We understand better after having had the opportunity to speak with Mayor Streeper from Fort Nelson and know what's happening with his community. You deserve to have your community back. You deserve to have common sense prevail. And you deserve to see the natural gas that you have used for prosperity of all Canadians, but directly for the community of Fort Nelson. Mr. Mayor, thank you so much, Vivian. As always, thank you to you. Hey, thanks for the opportunity, Roy. Okay. And same thing. Thank you very much. Okay, we'll talk again. We'll talk again, Mr. Mayor. We're going to stay in touch with you for sure. And Vivian, of course. 
The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. So the news is that Canada is a world leader in environmental performance. Uh, our economic, at least our, our environmental record, ranks in the top 10 among comparable high-income countries around the world. And that's the uh, study that was released on Thursday by the Fraser Institute. Let's talk about this study and joining us. On the Green Show on the Corus Radio Network is Ken Green, Senior Director of National Resources Studies for the Fraser Institute. Uh, Ken, thank you very much for the time. And put this into a perspective for us. What does this mean to Canada? Sure. Thanks for having me on. I should point out we're not related. No, no, we're not. I mean, that's the, to, ultimately to your benefit. <laughs> My wife would argue about that. But um, the, uh, uh, the, the point of the study is that uh, Canada is regularly criticized by groups like David Suzuki, uh, and other environmental groups as being some kind of global environmental laggard. And these attacks happen on an almost annual basis around Earth Day uh, to attempt to exert pressure for even more stringent and more and more stringent environmental policy. And we've looked at this for many years and realized over the years that the metrics that they're blaming us with, such as you know consumption of water per capita or consumption of energy, don't have any relationship to what actually happens to the environment as a result. So we uh, developed an index of actual environmental indicators where uh, things are being released into the environment that are harmful or dangerous or that the environment is being overly stressed in an unsustainable way. And what we found is that um, Canada is uh, ranked 10th out of 33 OECD countries. These are the high-income countries and generally some of the cleanest, environmentally cleanest countries in the world. Uh, so we ranked we rank in the top third, we're at t- 10th place, uh, well above the OECD average um, score for environmental protection. Uh, and on some metrics, we do particularly well. Uh, we're in ninth, ninth place for air quality and particulate matter, third place with regard to water pollution, uh, sixth place, we have the sixth, or ranked sixth for low emitting electricity production because of our large hydro resources. And even on carbon intensity, carbon and greenhouse gas emission intensity, that's emissions per unit of economic growth, when you adjust for our land size, we rank second out of the 33 countries. So we're doing extremely well, again, in the face of all the challenges that are thrown our way and the suggestions that are made that we're not as environmentally conscious as we need to be and we need to pick up our, well, pick up our socks and and get at it. This brings us to the issue, and we have, uh, I'm sorry we're a little limited on time, Ken, but we're, uh, this brings us to the issue of, of, of the pipelines and whether or not we are environmentally sound enough to carry this off. And we were just talking about it for the last 45 minutes with the mayor of Fort Nelson and uh, with, uh, with uh, Vivian Krauss of uh, At Fair Questions. So can you provide us an answer for that? Yeah, I don't think there's any question but that Canada can execute a pipeline, operate it safely, and transport the oil by sea. Uh, oil tr- transport by sea has doubled in recent years. Accident levels have dropped to nearly zero, and in fact are zero in Canadian waters. Um, there's absolutely no environmental problem with building a pipeline and moving bitumen through it. Uh, there are risks, as with anything we do, but the risk is even higher if we wind up moving it by train. So we have to be- bear keep that in context. And we also have to understand that to pay for our environmental protection, which costs us a lot of money. Dealing with environmental regulations and complying with them costs businesses and therefore their workers and, and people who rely on them very, very large amounts of money. And to, to, to be able to afford that, we need to keep our economy moving and growing well. And Canada has always been an energy 
producing economy and a natural resource-based economy. Uh, and we have to maintain our ability to do that, both with pipelines and other forms of natural resources, mining, um, timber, uh, fish, you name it. If we're going to afford to continue the environmental protection, we have to raise that money somewhere. All right. And if we don't do it, we will become what Mr. Trudeau said we're going to become, and that's the first post-national state. Ken Green, Fraser Institute, thank you so much for the time. Great talking to you, Ken. Thank you. Good to be with you. All the best. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.